Now we come to the third chapter of Second Timothy, and here we have the prediction of the apostasy that is coming. Paul here in his swan song, right before his execution in Rome, warns of the apostasy that would come in the last days, and he would give the antidote for that apostasy, which is the Word of God. And this chapter emphasized that, and that's the thing that makes this chapter so important, so meaningful for us today. Now, I want us to look at it with that in mind. I'm reading now, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 3. This know also. In other words, here's something that he says that this young man, Timothy, should know also. It's something apparently that's very important. And he's telling Timothy what to expect and what is to be the future of the church. And the future actually is not a very bright future, that is, for the organized church down here. And he says here, "...this know also that in the last days..." Perilous times shall come. And the last days here now, I take it, is a technical term that is used in several places in the New Testament. And it is used in a way that speaks of the last days of the church, that which immediately precedes the rapture of the church. That's the last days. And the last days of the church are not the same as the last days of the nation Israel that's mentioned in the Old Testament. The last days there are, as it's called, the end of the age or the time of the end. That's the great tribulation period, and that's different than the last days here. Now, the apostasy that began in the church in Paul's day, would continue. He had already told the Ephesians that after my decease, and Paul now knows he's ready to depart this earth, he says to them in Ephesus when he was there, he said, after my decease, grievous wolves will come in among you, and they won't spare the flock of God at all. They won't be giving you the word of God, but they'll be fleecing you. A great many of these false teachers spend a great deal of time fleecing the sheep. They shear them. And believe me, they shear them pretty close. And very candidly, my feeling is that unless you give folks something, you have no right to ask for anything because the workman is worthy of his hire. And Paul says, pay your preacher. And if he's a blessing to you, then you ought to give. And you ought to give, I think, where you get your blessing. I believe that's quite reasonable. You don't go down and buy groceries at one of the supermarkets and then go over to the other supermarket and pay them over there, that would be foolish indeed. In fact, they wouldn't permit it. The business world is rather hard-nosed about these things. But a great many folk today get their blessing one place and they pay in another place, which I think, candidly, is entirely wrong. But after all, that's up to them. Now, let me continue. This... I know also 
that in the last days perilous times shall come. Now, these perilous times, it means they're grievous or hard times that are coming. That doesn't look like the conversion of the world, does it? Doesn't look like the church is going to bring in the millennium. It doesn't look like that the church is going to convert the world. The Bible never taught that. That is the pipe dream of a great many idealists and a great many folk that have lived like the ostrich with their head in the sand and never faced reality. Now, notice what's coming in the last days. And we have 19 different descriptions given. And this is an ugly brood. None of it's very nice. But we want to look at them because it, I think, is probably the best picture of the present hour that you'll find anywhere in the Scripture. Now, I make a great deal of the fact that I do not think that we're seeing Scripture being fulfilled today. I think we're moving and have moved into the last days of the church, but that's not to give dates. And my reason for saying that is that these things that are indicated here have appeared. Now, I think that if you go back in the history of the church, there'd be times when you could find certain of these things that were in evidence, but I don't think you could ever find a period in which all of them would be so manifest as they are today. Now, will you notice them, and I'll begin reading them, and we'll have a word to say concerning them. First of all, men shall be lovers of their own selves, that is, lovers of self, are self-lovers, if you please. And this is the mark of the last day of the church here on earth. Now, this is very much in evidence today. And it's in evidence in all parts of our contemporary culture. I suppose that if there is one thing that is in evidence, this is it. I was reading an article just the other day by a newspaper correspondent who's been in Washington for many years. He is a liberal, it is true, but he has given a great deal of factual information from time to time. It's only when he becomes an editor that he gives you a bigoted and biased report. When he's reporting facts, he does very well. And here is one of the things that he said, and he didn't mention any particular party. He just said, the thing that characterizes Washington... And those that are in position there, and it's been true for the past 25 years, the one thing that they want the reporter to do is to praise them. They want to be praised. And that they practically insist upon it. And there are reporters that, he said, would show that favor to certain individuals and they would be rewarded in return. And then there were reporters that would show favor to the other group, and they would be rewarded in turn. But the thing that characterized the entire complexion of politics today is 
men want to be praised. Now, that's not confined to Washington. The one thing that I think would characterize Hollywood is that it probably is one of the greatest places for scratching backs that you'll find anywhere. This actor publicly is to say something nice about the other one, and then the other one in turn will return the favor. Now, this is not just confined to Hollywood. You find it, I think, in probably every walk of life today. I notice schools do it, and Christian schools do it. They have a way of giving out honorary degrees, and if this man, he boosts the school, well, they boost him by giving him an honorary degree. And that is a good case of backscratching that goes on. And you can move that today, actually, right into the church. As Paul's going to say here in this epistle, they want teachers with itching ears. They want their ears scratched. They want to be complimented. And then they get up and compliment the congregation. They tell how wonderful people are. They don't tell them that they're sinners. They tell them that they're wonderful, how wonderful the officers are. And there may be a bunch of rascals you can't tell. The interesting thing is today that self-love is the thing that characterizes this present hour in which we live. And probably there never has been a time when we have had so much of it as today. The second word is covetous, and I think that follows the other. Lovers of self lead to lovers of money, because I tell you, this old nature likes to have a lot of money spent on it, and they are lovers of money. Now, you remember he said the love of money is the root of all evil. It's not the money. It's our attitude and relationship to it. In other words, it's how you get it and how you use it, how you spend it covetous. And covetousness reveals itself not only in the acquisition of wealth, but in the use of it. I knew a very wonderful Christian man. He was a wealthy man. Looked like everything he touched would turn to gold. He had that Midas touch. And somebody said something to him one day in my presence about how he seemed to accumulate money. And he made the statement. He says, I'm not interested in money. I'm interested in what it'll do. And that had to do with the business world and also the Christian world, because he certainly used it for the glory of God. Covetous. And that is the love of money. Boasters. Now, that word has in it the idea of swaggerers. You can tell a proud man sometimes by the way he walks, and they walk like a peacock. And this is the idea. They're swaggerers. And then the next here, which is the fourth, proud. That means haughty. And the fifth, blasphemers, or better, railers. There are some folk that are just complainers, complainers all the time. And it's like a fellow one time, his wife said to him, she says, you know, she says, everybody in town's talking about the Smith's quarrel. And some of them, she said, are taking his part, and some are taking her part. And the husband, he chimed in. He says, well, he says, I suppose a few eccentric individuals are minding their own business. Always finding fault, always poking your nose into somebody else's business. The railer, that's what you have here in this word. And then the sixth one here, disobedient to parents. 
Now, there's no use laboring these points. They're so self-evident today. And certainly, this is one that is in evidence disobedient to parents. We've got actually thousands of boys and girls, just young teenagers, out on their own. They've left home, disobedient to parents. Now, they may be justified, but it still is true they're disobedient to parents. Now, the next one, unthankful. And again, what a revelation this is today. Some people accept from others without returning thanks. They accept everything from God and never return thanks to him. And then, let me keep on here, unholy. That is, they're profane. They're actually against God in their conversation, in their manner of life. And then nine, without natural affection. Unnatural affection obviously refers to the homosexual, because Paul says in Romans 1, verse 27, and likewise also the man leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lusts one toward another, man with man, working that which is unseemly. Now, there's no way in the world of interpreting that other than God says that that is sin, and it should be recognized as sin. For a while, the homosexual, like the drunkard, was considered to be sick. But today, he's received as a normal individual. But the Word of God says that's unnatural. Truce-breakers. And truce-breakers mean there are certain people you can't get along with. They're irreconcilable. They just won't let you get along with them. I saw that little saying I told you about in that restaurant out in West Texas, one of those little oil towns. It says, you can't please everybody, but we try. Well, you can't. There are a lot of people you can't please. We find out that Actually, even on this through the Bible radio program, there's some people we don't please. I don't know why, but we don't. But that is the meaning of this word here. Then false accusers. And believe me, friends, that abounds today. Incontinent. That means without self-control. That, again, characterizes many today. Fierce actually means savage. And today... Our city streets have become asphalt jungles and not safe to go. Why? Because men are returning again, becoming savages and despisers of those that are good. That means haters of the good. Believe me, there's evidence of that abroad. Traitors, that means betrayers. There's some folk you don't dare trust today. Heady, and that means reckless, high-minded. That means blinded by pride or drunk with pride, heady, high-minded. And then lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. And today that characterizes mankind. Never has there been a time when so much money has been spent out in order to provide pleasure, athletic events, entertainments. These are the things that are attracting millions of people today. 
And that is exactly the route Rome took when it went down. They provided grain and circuses for the mob, and then Rome fell. We're living in that kind of a day. Personally, I love to participate in athletics, always did. Tried to do everything I could. But I never could understand this type of athletics is where it's sitting and beholding it. And I never thought that it was very exciting to go out to the Colosseum and sit with 85,000 people to watch 22 men out there working for $15,000 apiece. Now, I'd like to have been out there myself if I'd been younger. But I want to say to you, I'm not even about to go out there to watch them any more than I want to stop and watch the ditch digger. In fact, I'd rather watch the ditch digger because he's not as money hungry. I don't blame these men, but the point is there are multitudes that are spending fortunes providing entertainment. Now, here is that which characterizes the visible church, having a form of godliness, but denying the power of it from such turn away. Now, now this is the day when men are going through the rituals of religion, but they lack life and reality. Now, he says you'd avoid that sort of thing. And may I repeat this? If you are in a dead, cold, liberal church, and you're a believer, my question is, what are you doing there? When the Word of God says, avoid those things. Now, across this land today, there are many wonderful pastors and wonderful churches. I've been reading you some letters. I could read you hundreds of letters from these wonderful men across this country today that are standing for God, and why aren't God's people standing with and for these men? May I say to you, the Word of God's very clear here. Now, he says, "...for of this sort are they who creep into houses, lead captive silly women, laden with sins, led away with various lusts." And there have been folk, and that silly women means, I think, silly women of both sexes. There are people that have been going to Bible conferences for years. I've met them. And some of them don't know any more about the Word of God than they did when I met them 25 years ago. You wonder what they're doing, what's happening. Ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Oh, my friend, if you find yourself in that category today, get down on your knees and ask God to forgive you. I do want to say just this that I believe that we're moved also into an orbit today where you're going to be persecuted for your faith. And this is not just the wild statement of a preacher here in Pasadena, California. Melvin Ladd, several years ago, up in San Francisco at the Republican Convention, long before he had become Secretary of Defense, made this statement, and I do not know under what circumstances he made it, but I thought it was strange coming out of a convention. He says, in this world, it is becoming more and more unpopular to be a Christian. Soon, it may become dangerous. Now, I didn't make that statement. He made that statement. At least the press reported that he did. And I want to say to you today, friends, I think that we may be able to, in the days that are ahead, see the separation of the men and the boys, those who are really standing for Jesus Christ and those who are not. 
And I think this is something that every believer should take an inventory of his life. How far am I willing to go for Jesus Christ? What would I really be willing to give up? Rather heart-searching, isn't it? Now, I'm very sorry to have to say to you, I don't come up with too good an answer, but I do want to serve him, and I love him, and I'd like to say to him, I hope he'll give me grace to bear if and when the time comes. I'm reading now verse 8. Now as Jannes and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth, men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith. Now, Paul in this chapter is telling us about the apostasy that would come in the last days. And he gives the warning concerning it. These days would be desperate days. They would be, as our translation has it, perilous days. I have no objection, don't misunderstand, with that translation. But actually, desperate days would be a good translation also. Then he described the characteristics of those days that would come. And I believe that we're in that particular period. Now, I do not know how much longer it'll last or how much worse it'll get. I'm sure that it's going to get worse and not better. Now, Jannes and Jambres here were the names of the two magicians that Pharaoh called in when Moses, you remember, began with the miracles when the plagues came upon Egypt. The interesting thing is that for the first two or three, these magicians could imitate. But then when it proceeded, they saw that it was the hand of God there and that things were taking place they could not duplicate. Well, there's several things to note here. First is, we'd never know the names of these magicians if Paul hadn't given them to us. Now, that opens up a great reservoir of speculation. Where did Paul get the names of the two? My simple answer is that it was revealed to him by the Spirit of God. I do not think that it adds much information to us today, but it reveals, I think, something that's quite interesting, that Paul knew the names of them. Not only they're not nameless magicians, but they had names, real individuals. They did withstand Moses, and that account is given back in the seventh chapter of Exodus, and you can read about them in the eleventh verse. I'm not going to turn to that at all. Now, it reveals also two things, that Satan has power. He has supernatural power. And also that he's a great little imitator. And he imitates the things that God does. And these men were able to do what Moses did. Moses did it by the power of God. They do it by the power of Satan. And I believe that this is the reason this is given to us, is to understand that in our day, Satan can imitate the power of God. And I'm afraid that in many places... 
There is the manifestation of the power of Satan and not the power of God, and it's misunderstood. That's the reason John warned us and said, try the spirits, see whether they be of God or not. And that is something that we should do. Now, we're told to turn away from this type of thing. These men resist the truth. They are men of corrupt minds. And the word reprobate here means cast away. It means they have discarded the faith. They have rejected it totally. Now, I think that we have a classic example in our day. We had a bishop out here of the Episcopal Church on the West Coast, a man apparently of tremendous ability. But the fact seemed to be that even his family, and he from the very beginning, delved in that which was spiritualistic, this type of thing that borders on the supernatural. Now, this man, as best I can tell, had rejected the great truths of Scripture. And he made a trip to Palestine, and it's my understanding that he intended to attempt to disprove some of the great truths of the Word of God. Well, he didn't disprove any of the truths, but he certainly proved some of them, and I think this is one of them. I actually believe that it's a strange thing that happened out there for that man to die as he did. Now, I don't propose to offer any kind of an explanation other than here is a classic example of that. A man that apparently at one time professed to believe something. Then there came a day when he became, as the Scripture says, reprobate, uh, cast away. He discarded the faith. Now, he says, "...but they shall proceed no farther, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men." as theirs also was. And I think today that what happened to this man ought to be a tremendous lesson to Christians. Now, you can dabble in this thing if you want to, but you're dabbling in something that's quite dangerous because actually there is a manifestation of satanic power about us. And in this day of crass materialism, it's a strange anomaly that there is also the manifestation of a supernatural power, and there's some men that are rather startled to discover that because they had rejected the supernatural altogether. But a great deal of it is satanic, of course. Now, I read on, verse 10. But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, patience. You see, Timothy knew Paul knew him well, and Paul's life was an open book, and a Christian's life ought to be that. Now, verse 11, he continues, Timothy knew about his persecutions, his afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, and this is Antioch of Pisidium, and Iconium and Lystra, and these places are in the Galatian country where Paul went on his first, his second and his third missionary journey. Now, on his first missionary journey, he was stoned at Lystra and left for dead, and I think was dead. God raised him from the dead. Paul said God intervened in his behalf here. And he says, "...what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me." 
Now, this was where Timothy lived, was in that area. It's where his mother and his grandmother, his family lived. His father, Greek, was from that area there. Now, Paul says, you know all about this. And you know what I've gone through. And verse 12, and yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Now, I believe that today we're moving in a time when it does cost you something to be a Christian. I gave a quotation for Mr. Melvin Ladd that the press gave at the time several years ago of the convention up at San Francisco. And I do not know the circumstances under which he made this statement, but he said, in this world it's becoming more and more unpopular to be a Christian. Soon it may become dangerous. I apparently know something that I don't know, and maybe you don't know. But apparently, friends, we're moving in an orbit today where Christianity is becoming, and I mean real Christianity, is becoming very unpopular, and Christians are. I am not really moved today by the press when they talk about the freedom of the press and how a reporter that won't reveal his source is put in prison. The bleeding heart press today has played that for all it's worth. But have they said anything about the fact today that real Christianity is stifled by the press? When was the last time that you read a sympathetic writer of the Bible position today? May I say to you, they would give a man like Bishop Pike front page notoriety, but there's many a uh, fundamental preacher that man of, I think, greater ability than this man was, even intellectually, but given no publicity. Why? Because we really don't have freedom of the press. And you say, what do you mean? Well, I mean simply this, that the press will stifle and shut off news that presents real Christianity. And if you get any publicity at all, They'll misrepresent you. And not only that, if a preacher commits murder, he'll make the front page. But if he saves a group of people from going to hell, why, they discard him. I'm saying today that we're moved into an orbit, friends, when we may know what it is to pay a price to stand for Christ. Now he goes on to say, verse 13, and will you notice that here? but evil men and seducers. Now, seducers here, it's interesting to note, are sorcerers, are imposters, either one. Evil men and seducers shall become worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. That is, leading people astray, and then in turn being led astray themselves. Now, this is a picture of the last day. Now, what can a child of God do in days like these? Here's what he says, "...but continue thou in the things which thou hast learned." Verse 14, I'm reading, "...and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus." Now, what is the antidote today in this world of apostasy? The antidote is the Word of God. 
What is the resource and the recourse of a child of God today? The Word of God. It's the only recourse. It is the only place that we can turn in a day like this. Continue thou in the things which thou hast learned. And he says that from a child, though, he had known the Holy Scripture. You see, his grandmother and his mother had taught him the Word of God. They were Jewish mothers, and they had taught him the Holy Scriptures, the Word of God. Now, he says, they're able to make thee wise unto salvation. What kind of salvation? Timothy was already saved at this time. I think that salvation is in three tenses. And I think that we always need to look at it like that's the past tense. I have been saved from sin. And present tense, I am being saved from sin. And third, I shall be saved from sin. I have been saved. Christ bore a judgment debt, and we pass from death to life. And we're not under condemnation today. There's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. But we are being saved today also. He's working out a salvation in us. And we won't even have that perfected in this life. But as we look into the future, there is coming a day that, beloved, it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. Now, I think that what Paul's talking about here, that the Scripture not only gives you the modus operandi of being saved, that is, passing from death to life, and having eternal life and becoming a child of God. But it is the Word of God that saves you in this present evil world, enables you to grow, gives you deliverance down here. That's one of the reasons we're teaching. We believe that the constant study of the Word of God is the only help that any of us has. Now he says that it is able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And I think it makes you wise in how to live down here. Now he says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now when he says all Scripture, he means all, friends. Genesis to Revelation. Now somebody's going to say that well, didn't you know that Revelation hadn't been written at this time? I sure do. <laughs> but the important thing is, is to know that Revelation became Scripture. And Paul here is covering it all. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And that word inspiration means it's God-breathed. These men, actually, they were not pens that the Lord picked up and wrote with them. But the marvel of it is that he used these men's personality, expressed things in their thought patterns, and yet he got through exactly what he wanted to say. And God has given us his word, and he hasn't any more to say to us. If God opened heaven and spoke out of heaven today, he wouldn't add anything to what he's already said, friends. He has said it. And he hasn't any more to say to us. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly, is the word, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Now, will you look at that for just a moment here? Because this is 
important for us to understand. It is good for doctrine, that is, for teaching. That's the reason we teach it. The Bible is to be taught, and it's good for reproof. That's conviction. It should bring conviction to us, and it's good for correction. And if the Spirit of God is working, it'll bring conviction to our hearts. That's the way you can test where the Word of God is moving in your life. If you read this book like you read any other book, then may I say to you, the Spirit of God's not moving. This book's different. And it's given by the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God is the one that must use it. If it's not meaning anything to you, then it's just like any other book to you. Now, it's for correction. That is setting things right in your life. And it's to do that. And it's for instruction. And that means discipline. The Word of God is to discipline us. Now, it says that the man of God may be perfect. Well, that doesn't mean that you and I are going to reach the kind of perfection you and I think of today, but it means full maturation. You'll be a complete, full-grown man. There are a lot of baby Christians around today, thoroughly furnished, That is, the Word of God can fit you out for life for every good work. That's the reason, friends, that I don't buy all these little programs and these little systems and these little methods. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and all of it is used today in order to meet your need. Now, let me say something here. Some that say, how do you know it's the Word of God? You want to know how I know? And I could give many reasons, but I'm going to give the one here because you can prove it's true. How do you prove it's true? Well, God says, taste of the Lord and see whether he's good. And he says here that the word of God is profitable. And here's what it'll do. I have right here on my desk right now about 500 letters. I know what it'll do. And I have those around me today, and they are willing to testify. I believe that the Word of God is as much a fact, and you can prove it, as much as you can prove any problem of geometry or any scientific fact today. This is what the Word of God will do. Will it do it? It does it. And it's geared into life. I tell you, this book gets right down where the rubber meets the road. It walks in shoe leather today, and that's the proof of it. And that's the thing that makes me know it's the Word of God. This book of 2 Timothy has in it a note of sadness. And I hope you've detected also there's a note of loneliness here. Paul is alone yonder in Rome, and he's saying to this man, Timothy, I want you to hurry up and come be with me. He's lonely. And he's down yonder in that Mamertine prison. He says, I want you to bring my cloak. And he's cold down there. I've been down in that prison. I tell you, I'd hate to be put there. And Paul says, the hours are long. Bring my books, my parchments. I need to study. And now we're going to see Paul actually on his deathbed. And there is that note of sadness and loneliness. But you're going to find something else here, and that's going to be the note of victory. And you're going to hear him give it the last charge. And I actually believe that when you listen to him as we'll listen to him, that you're hearing from God. 
the thing that he wants you to hear. This is his last word for you. And if you're not prepared to accept this and receive this, I don't think he's got anything else to say to you. (laughs) This is it. Now, Paul has talked to this man, Timothy, in a very personal way. And Paul has said that in days of apostasy, our resource, our recourse is to the Word of God, and it will adequately meet our need. It will be able to reach in and touch us in those vital places where we need to be touched. And we are finding today that that's exactly what the Word of God is doing. Last time, I said that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's God-breathed. It says what He wants said. And He has said everything that He wants to say. It'll meet the need of your heart. What's the proof of that? Well, it's profitable for certain things, for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect. That is, may reach full maturation and furnished unto all good works. Now, I have two letters that illustrate that. And I'd like to put them in right here before we see Paul's charge to Timothy. The first letter comes from Columbus, Ohio. Now, listen to this. I just have to write to you to let you know just how inspirational it has been to me to start through the Bible with you. Even though I've had quite a struggle physically, it's been a good year. I had mass thyroid surgery, and it was while I was recuperating that a dear friend told me about the religious programs on radio, and especially through the Bible radio. She shared her outline with me, and I've been keeping up with it ever since. When I have to go out, I always begrudge the time that I have to miss tuning you in. So I mentioned this to another friend. She informed me that I can get you on another station. Praise God. I'm praying earnestly to God that he may continue to bless you in all of your endeavors and such blessings that you stand in need of. I've really received a wonderful blessing these months that I've been going through the Bible with you. And now I'm going to break off that letter because it becomes personal. We appreciate that. Now, I have another letter, and this letter comes from Nashville, Tennessee. And will you listen to this? I do not intend to make this lengthy. In my mind, I have composed page after page to tell you what your teaching of the Word has meant to me and my husband. We were in the same boat, floating along without a navigator. Someday I hope to be able to tell you how joy has been brought into our lives at a time of many family problems and unanswerable questions. How in our middle years we know more love and hope and zest for living than in our younger years. How our Father used sorrow and you and the Through the Bible ministry to be a part, a great part in bringing this about. 
I want to point out three things that neither of us, reared by believing parents and ourselves, lifelong churchgoers, knew until two years ago when we started tuning you in. We don't know why we didn't see for ourselves. We had teachers who tried to tell us, and we read the Bible. I think the Lord was preparing us. I'm able to see His providence now. But we knew nothing of our sin nature, of the Holy Spirit except as mentioned in the Apostles' Creed. We knew the Holy Spirit came upon Mary, and we believe this. But we didn't know that the Holy Spirit was within us, nor did we know of the resurrected life. We were fighting the losing battle of trying to be good and had just about given up on it when we started listening to Through the Bible. We then realized that indeed we did have to give up and that God would start us in the right direction through his grace manifested by Jesus Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit. I should add this, that is at the end of the letter. It says, my humorous husband just made the remark, McGee can get down off his ladder now. The rose parade is over. I tell the story about that's the way I see it. I never buy a ticket to sit in a grandstand. I'm a Scotchman. And so what I do is... I just put my ladder back of the parade. But friends, the reason that I've shared these two letters with you is that the proof of the pudding is in the eating of it. God says, taste to the Lord and see whether it's good. The Lord Jesus said, you'll know whether this doctrine is true. How are you going to know it? Well, whether it gets into your life, whether it does something for you. Now, my friend, this is the proof that this is the Word of God. The telephone book won't do this for you, and the Sears and Roebuck catalog won't do this for you, and neither will any other book. But the Word of God will do this for you. Now, it actually is with a note of sadness that we come to the fourth chapter of Second Timothy. And the reason for that, as we said at the beginning, Second Timothy is the swan song of the Apostle Paul. It's his deathbed statement. In this epistle, he's back in prison in Rome. He's lonely. And there is a sadness that word has come to him that there has been, especially in the Galatian area and in Asia Minor, turning away from the faith on the part of many You see, the apostasy began in Paul's day, for that matter, and it has been continuing down. When the rapture takes place, it will bring about, of course, the total apostasy of the organized church, which at that time will be an empty shell. Now, I begin reading at chapter 4, verse 1. I charge thee... Therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this man's on his deathbed. And I want to tell you that he's very serious about what he's saying. And he says to him here, I charge you. This is a charge he's given to this young preacher. Who shall judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom? 
so that his appearing in his kingdom are not the same thing. His appearing is his epiphany, the rapture of the church. And by his kingdom, that's the revelation, the return of Christ to the earth to establish his kingdom. And he's going to do some judging twice. He's going to do judging of his believers when he takes them out of the world. And he's going to judge also those who go through the great tribulation and turn to God in that great tribulation. They are going to be judged whether they're going to enter the kingdom or not. So that you're going to come before him, whoever you are. And if you want to postpone it till after the tribulation, you can do it. But if you want to take part in the rapture, you accept Christ as your Savior. Now, your life's to be tested whether you're going to receive a reward or not at either time if you've turned to God. So that he's saying to Timothy, in view of the fact, Timothy, that you are to be judged. You're going to stand before him. Here's what you're to do. And I think that this is as pertinent as it is when it was given by the Apostle Paul. I don't think the printer's ink is dry here yet. This is what God would say to you and to me right now. He says, preach the word. And the word, preach the word, means to herald it, to give it out, to proclaim the word of God. This is very important. It's sort of a rallying cry. It is sort of like a motto. It's like that which people respond to. You remember we had such a thing during World War II? Remember Pearl Harbor. And way back in the Spanish and American War was remember the main. And it's a rallying cry. This is a rallying cry to you today, friends, and to me. Herald the Word. Give out the Word of God. And the expression I've adopted, and many of you are giving it back to me, is let's get out the Word. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. Preach the Word. Now he says, be diligent in season, out of season. That means that if they wake you up at 2 o'clock in the morning, you ought to be able to give out the Word of God. And the thing's important that we give out the Word of God. Now, this doesn't mean that you're to preach about the Word of God. I went to my denominational seminary, and we had a wiseacre student there in our class, and he'd come up with some good ones. He was a boy from North Carolina. And one day he said to the professor, he says, you know, you could graduate from this seminary and never own a Bible. You know why? Because we studied about the Bible. Very little study of the Bible. And it means that we are not to preach about the Word, but preach the Word. And then there's something else rather subtle here. He didn't say preach from the Word. He didn't say take a text and then go everywhere preaching the gospel. Someone has said that a text is a pretext that's taken out of its context, and it's used by many today in just that way. It means to preach the Word of God. Give out the Word of God. Preach the Word. Be diligent in season, out of season. And that word in our translation is be instant. Diligent is what it is in the New Scofield. I like that. But I like another word. Be urgent. In other words, there's a compulsion upon us. 
and this should be our attitude. I tell you, we should just be standing there chafing at the bit, ready to give out the Word of God. And as we said, in season, out of season, doesn't make any difference what time of the year it is, under what circumstances, two o'clock in the morning, give it out. Now he says, we're to reprove. And that, I think, is a better word than we have here. Actually, it's convict. And I believe that here, that would be a better word. Convict. It should be given with conviction. And rebuke here, actually, it means to threaten. I tell you, I shared the pulpit of a black minister here in Los Angeles not too long ago. He's a wonderful man of God, and I preach for him from time to time. And I want to tell you, he really threatened his people. I wish that more ministers had the courage that that man had. He really threatened them. And he said he didn't want any deacons that were not going to deke. If they didn't intend to deke, he didn't want them on the board. And the word here is threaten and exhort here. The word exhort here actually means to comfort. And there are times when we need to recognize that. There are times to comfort. And then... With all long suffering, that means a lot of patience, and doctrine. Now, doctrine means teaching. Every minister, I think, should have a teaching ministry. And this is what the man of God's to do today. If we've been called, then we are, are to preach the Word. And preach the Word means to do this. Now, let me move on. He says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. And I'm not sure but what we've come there today, by and large. We are absolutely, may I say, we're startled, we're amazed, we're overwhelmed by the number of people today that are listening to the teaching of the Word. But when I begin to put that group down by the total population, it's a very small percentage, really. They're a very few church members today that will endure sound doctrine. They don't want sound doctrine at all. But after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. Let me enlarge upon that, because I have what I think is a very important comment on this particular passage. Shall they heap to themselves teachers? And I want to read to you what Dr. Benson has said in his word studies. And I'm reading now, "...shall they heap to themselves teachers? That means shall invite teachers in mass, in periods of unsettled faith, skepticism, and mere curious speculation in matters of religion. Teachers of all kinds swarm like the flies in Egypt. The demand creates the supply." The hearers invite and shape their own preachers. If the people desire a calf to worship, a ministerial calf maker is readily found. And that is true today. Someone has said that the modern pulpit is a sounding board that is merely saying back to the people what they want to hear. Now, having itching ears, and again, let me quote Dr. Vincent, Clement of Alexander describes certain teachers as scratching and tickling. In no human way, the ears of those who eagerly desire to be scratched. 
Some come to hear, not to learn, just as we go to the theater for pleasure to delight our ears with the speaking or the voice or the plays. Now, this is certainly a picture today. Someone again has said, some people go to church to close their eyes and others to eye the clothes. That's the thing that brings them out. Now, the day will come when churchgoers do not want sound doctrine. That means, actually, the word is healthy, and they want instead a substitute. They don't want the Word of God. May I quote from a man I consider a very great preacher today? He was a great pastor in Covington, Kentucky, and in Chicago at the great Moody Church, Dr. Warren Worsby. And I quote him now. He says, They want religious entertainment from Christian performers who will tickle their ears. We have a love for novelty in the churches today. Emotional movies, pageants, foot-tapping music, colored lights, etc. The man who simply opens the Bible is rejected, while the shallow religious entertainer becomes a celebrity. And verse 4 indicates that itching ears soon will become deaf ears as people turn away from the truth and believe man-made fables. Now, that's a very excellent statement. Let me read verse 4 now in that connection. They shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. They won't want to hear sound doctrine, they got itching ears, something novel, something that will entertain them. When I first came to California, the late Dr. Gabeline wintered out here in Pasadena at a very famous old hotel. And when he was here for the winter, Dr. Chafer wrote me from Dallas. He said, Dr. Gabeline is down there. And he said, let me suggest that you go down and visit him. He'll appreciate a visit from you as he gets lonesome. And so Dr. Gabeline then was way up in years, been a great man of God, and a great teacher. I still benefit from his books. And friends, when we go back to Ezekiel, where we go next time, why, you're going to listen to someone who studied under Dr. Gabeline the book of Ezekiel. And he's the man that opened the book to my understanding. And so I went down to see him, naturally. He'd been a teacher. And so he asked me, i just come to California. He says, how do you like California? You know, I said, this is a strange place. I love it here, but it's very interesting. I said, I've already found that if I teach the book of Revelation, I can fill the church, even during midweek service. But I said, then I can begin teaching the epistle to the Romans, and I can practically empty the church. And I said, I find there are people that will run all the way across this area to find out from some speaker who will tell them how many hairs are in the red horse's tail in Revelation. And he made this statement to me, and I shall never forget it. He said in his broken accent, he said, Dr. McGee, you are going to find out in your ministry that there are a great many people more interested in Antichrist than they are interested in Christ. And there are a lot of folk with itching ears. 
They like to hear about these strange, weird, unusual things. They want to be entertained. They want to be told how nice they are. But they don't want to be given the Word of God. I, very frankly, get some letters from folk that say, when I started listening to you, I not only didn't like your accent, didn't like what you said. You stepped on my toes. Well, I didn't step on their toes. I don't even know them. Word of God does. And so they said, then we began to listen, and we found out that this was good for us. Now, I imagine that there are a great many that tune me in and then tune out, and I never hear about them at all. Why? They want to be entertained. I feel like that I'm like that advertisement about Listerine. I hate it, but I use it twice a day. And I think there are a great many people start out saying, boy, I don't like that. I don't like what he's saying. But they begin to listen. They find out it's good for them. I'm the spiritual Listerine of radio today, and I don't mind being that because it's good for you. And I hate it, but I use it twice a day. And I love those people that do that, that listen to the program. Now, will you notice, he says, "...but watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist." Now, the work of an evangelist here is not quite the way we understand it. Actually, the work of an evangelist was a traveling teacher in that day, a missionary. Paul was an evangelist in that sense. And he says to Timothy, you're to do the work of an evangelist. And that's what this man had done when he was with the apostle Paul. Now, he said, you're going to suffer afflictions, hardship. It's going to cost you something to preach the Word of God in the last days. And we seem to be there. Now, if you have found your place there at verse 6, chapter 4, again may I say today that we have now come to the deathbed testimony of Paul. And here Paul writes his own epitaph. And this is, I think, one of the great statements in the Word of God. So if you have found that place, 2 Timothy 4, 6, I'll begin reading. For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that love his appearing." Now, this is a very rich passage of Scripture, one of the great passages of Scripture, by the way. And you have here this epitaph divided, I believe, into two sections. You have the first part of it, which is retrospect. He looks back now upon his earthly life, because this is right before he was executed, right before... He died, and the Roman government put his head on the chopping block, and he was martyred. Now, he looks back over his earthly life. That's the first part. And then there is the prospect. He looks forward to eternal life, his earthly life and eternal life, and it's separated by what we call death down here. Now, he doesn't deal with details or certain specific 
instances. But he sums up his life in three different ways here. He says, first of all, I fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Now, will you notice, he says, therefore, that this life is a battle. I fought a good fight. Now, that means he's been a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And you remember, back in chapter 2, he gave there what I've been pleased to call seven salient symbols of saved sinners. That's a jawbreaker. But here, seven different figures of speech are used. And one of them is, a child of God is a good soldier. Paul's been a good soldier. He's fought a good fight. He says, I finished my course. That is, life is not only a battle, life is a race. And he's been an athlete. And he mentions that. Now he says, I've kept the faith. That is, life is a trust. And he's been a steward. He has been a student of the Word of God. Study to show thyself approved unto God. Now, Paul told Timothy he's to be that kind of a person. Now, when Paul reaches the end of his life, he can say something that he hadn't been able to say before. Before, he said he was keeping under his body. He was attempting to live the Christian life in such a way that he would not be disapproved. Now, he can say at the end of his life, I fought a good fight. But now he prefaces all of this by saying, I am now ready to be offered. And if you would go into that execution room in Rome, it would be a bloody scene. And very candidly, it would be a sickening scene for you. To see him put his head on that chopping block and that big, burly, brutal Roman soldier lift that tremendous blade above his head and then come down and with one fell swoop, his head drops in a basket on one side and his body falls limp and trembling on the other side. But Paul says, if that's all you saw, you really didn't see very much. First of all, that happened to be an altar. And what he's saying here is this. I'm ready to be offered. Now, he means that his life is poured out as a libation, a drink offering. Now, he's used that figure before back in Philippians at his first arrest, when he knew death could be before him. Why, at that time, he used that figure of speech, that he wanted his life to be poured out. Now, he can say at the end of his life, my life has been poured out like a libation. Now, that drink offering, no specific instructions given concerning it, but again and again, you find it mentioned back in Leviticus, and it was wine that was taken, and when that sacrifice was put on the altar, why, it was red hot, you know, because that brazen altar, the fire underneath it, the fire of judgment, well, then the drink offering was poured on it. Well, you know exactly what would happen. It would go up in steam. It would just disappear like that. Now, Paul says, that's what my life has been. I've just poured out my life as a drink offering on the sacrifice of Christ. Nothing for me, but everything for him. 
This, I think, is one of the most wonderful figures of speech. And when I see today so many Christians that are trying to get their names put in marble or wood or something that they think will be permanent, and you find around in Christian organizations and places today, here's a room name for this man and a building name for that man and another name for that man. There's no building name for Paul. That is, he didn't go in for that. He says, my life is a drink offering poured out, and it's Christ is the one that's to be exalted and not Paul. This is tremendous, by the way. I'm ready to be offered. Now, he says these three things that we've mentioned. Yeah, I fought a good fight. He's been a soldier. He's been a good soldier. And what he's saying here again is life is a battle. And there is a battle to be fought. There's a victory to be won. And I've been a soldier of my Savior. And that is a position that we should take. I think every Christians should be a defender of the Word of God, may not enter into the field of apologetics, but certainly we ought to stand for the great truth of the Word of God. Then he says here, I have finished my course. And here you have, it's a race, it's an athletic event. I've been an athlete. And you remember Paul says, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And he could make a statement, by the way, that you find in Hebrews. And, of course, there's always that question of whether Paul wrote Hebrews or not. When we get there shortly, why, I'm going to, I tell you right now, I'm going to take the position that he wrote Hebrews. And he says there, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, And how are we to do that? Why, we're to run with patience the race that is set before us. Now, Paul says, I'm at the end of the racetrack. (laughs) I've won, and there is to be a reward. And then he says, I have kept the faith. I want that to be said, that I've kept the faith, that the great truths and doctrines of the Word of God, that we've stood for those things. Now, these are the tremendous statements here, and this is something that I think that we should note. Now, I want to move back before we go down to the positive side. Now, as he leaves this life, I've fought a good fight. I've finished my course. I've kept the faith. Now, let me come back to that original statement again. The time of my departure is at hand. Now, that word departure here is not the word that's used for the rapture of the church that you find in Second Thessalonians, the departure of the church from this earth. Because Paul was going through a different doorway, because the living church, that is the church that's in existence when the rapture takes place, they will not go through the doorway of death. We shall not all sleep. But we all are going to be changed so that that group that are left then, they'll not go through the doorway of death. So here, departure is a very interesting word. It's the word analysis. Now, it's made up of two words. Luo means to untie and unloose. And with analusis, it 
could be used of untying a shoestring. And it was a nautical term that was used of a ship that was tied up at the harbor ready for a sea voyage. It's been tied in there by the ropes. Now the time of the departure, that is, the ship now, is ready to put out to sea. Now, Paul gave an altogether different conception than that which is popular today. I've heard this at a funeral service, and I'm sure you have. Dear brother so-and-so, he's now come into the harbor at last. He's been out yonder on a pretty wild sea. And the voyage is over now, and he's coming to the harbor. Now, that's just the opposite of what Paul is saying that it is. He says, I'm getting ready now to take off. I've been tied down here to the harbor. And that's what this life is, by the way. We haven't been anywhere yet. We've just been tied down to this little earth here. And actually, the only one that I know, any writer of the past, that ever really caught this meaning of Paul was Tennyson in that very familiar poem you will recall, "'Sunset and evening star and one clear call for me, and may there be no moaning at the bar when I put out to sea.'" And that's what death is for the child of God. Paul says, "'Don't look at my execution. Let blood make you sick. I'm just a ship that's been tied up at the harbor, and at that time... I'm really taking off. To go and be with Christ will be far better. I had the privilege of baptizing the poetess Martha Snell Nicholson and also of having her funeral. She suffered with a disease. She was so sensitive you couldn't touch her body without she'd scream. And I baptized her in her bathtub, tell the truth because she just couldn't stand to go to a place where she'd have to go down and be helped. Nobody could touch her. And when I did, why, she screamed, because you did have to just touch her once. Now, may I say to you that she suffered at that disease. And let me tell you, she really suffered. During that time, she wrote some poems, and it's in a little book called Head Held High. Isn't that lovely? Head Held High. And that's the way she went out, with her head held high. And for her, it was a release. That's what death is for a child of God. We groan within these bodies today, and one of these days, we're going to be released. And that's what death is. And Paul, therefore, could say that, that now he's getting ready to really go out for a real trip. What a wonderful thing that is. Now, we come to the positive side, he says here, Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Now, this is the other side of the coin. Henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me. Now, he'll get a crown of righteousness, and he's going to get the crown for the warrior, for the soldier. He'll get the crown for the athlete. And he'll get the crown for being a trustee, of being a faithful student of the Word of God. And he's going to get a crown is a reward. And he's going to receive that someday. I don't think he's got it yet, but the Lord has it for him when he starts passing them out. And he mentions these crowns, by the way, 
And there are many crowns that are mentioned in Scripture. One of them is in 1 Corinthians 9, 25, "...and every man that striveth for the master is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible crown for an athlete, you see." Then over in Philippians 4, verse 1, "...therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved, and long for my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved." Now, the people that you had the part in leading to the Lord, there's a crown for that. I think Paul's going to get quite a few crowns someday. Now, he says, "...henceforth there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness." And I believe a crown of righteousness is the reward for a righteous life. And he'll receive, I take it, all the crowns, however, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that love his appearing. Those that love his appearing. Now, to love his appearing is different from holding the doctrine of the coming of Christ. Now, you may be a premillennialist today. You may be an analyst. I got news for you. There's no reward for holding any one of those views. The question is, do you love his appearing? That's the difference in man today. That's the big difference there is. It's not a question today of your doctrine. Do you love his appearing? Man says, I'm fundamental. I'm a premillennialist. I'm pre-trib. Brother, so am I. But I have a question for you. Do you love his appearing? Now, there's a crown for those that love his appearing. Now, there are a great many people today hold the doctrine, but they don't love his appearing. That means you've got to love him, too. And it means that you've lived as Paul, a life in fellowship with him, a close relationship with him. And I have a notion Paul told the Lord every day he loved him, because he'd hated him once and persecuted him. And I think he made up for that. You ever told him that you love him? Well, he has a crown for those that love his appearing. I'd like that crown. I tell you, that's going to shine brighter than the rest of them, I think. Now, we come to verse 9, and as we do, we come to his last words and listen to him. This has been a triumphant note. Now, it's not so triumphant. Paul faces reality. Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. Why does he say that? He's lonesome. He's down in that Mamertine prison. Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. He's lonesome. For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. Old Demas took off. He couldn't stand the heat. And he had to get away. And so he left Paul. And... He's departed unto Thessalonica. He got off pretty far peace, by the way. And Crescens went to Galatia and Titus unto Dalmatia. Now, whether these other brethren had a legitimate excuse for leaving, I don't know. I think Titus did, but I do not know enough about Crescens to defend him. Now he says, only Luke is with me. Good old Dr. Luke, he stood by Paul. And take Mark and bring him with thee, for he's profitable to me for the ministry. Bring John Mark with you. And you remember, Paul wouldn't take him on the second missionary journey. But Paul was wrong about him. John Mark made good. And now Paul is able to say, and I'm glad he said it here, 
on his deathbed, he says, bring Mark with you. He's profitable to me for the ministry. And Tychicus have I sent to Ephesus. Now, Paul sent him away because he's pastor of the church. He can't just stick around Rome all the time if he's pastor of the church in Ephesus. Now, will you notice something here that I think is quite interesting? He says, the cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus, when thou comest, bring with thee. Paul was cold down that Mamertine prison, down in that dungeon. Cold down there. Paul says, bring my cloak. It's cold down here. That's for his physical need. And the books, but especially the parchment. That's something for his mind. He wanted something to read. Something for his body, something for his mind. There's something for his spirit, too. This is not it, however. Verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his works. And believe me, his reward won't be what Alexander will think will be a reward. I think he's going to be judged for doing what he did. Of whom do thou beware also, for he hath greatly withstood our words. He says to Timothy, when you meet Alexander, don't let him soft-soak you. He's one of these laymen that pat you on the back and then crucifies you when you get out of sight. Beware of him. Now, he says, at my first defense, no man stood with me. Paul was alone at that time. I don't think Paul's saying this by word of condemnation. He's just stating a fact. But all men forsook me. And now I think he's saying that they had turned their back on the faith. I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge. Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me. I said there was something that was spiritual here. The Lord stood with me. The Lord was with him. There's something for his body, something for his mind, and something for his spirit. And you and I need that today, whether we are in prison or out of prison or wherever we are. And it's nice to be able to say, the Lord's with me. The Lord stood with me and strengthened me, that by me the preaching might be fully known, that all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. I think that's Rome he's talking about. And the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory forever and ever. Paul was going to be translated there. Now, he closes with some more names of people. This is personal. Greet Prisca and Aquila. We know about them. Paul thought of them at the last. He led them to the Lord in Corinth. And the household of Onesephorus, Erastus abode at Corinth, but Trophimus have I left at Miletus sick. Do thy diligence, here he asked him to come again, do thy diligence to come before winter. Eubulus greeteth thee, and Pudens, and Linus, and Claudia, and all the brethren. The Lord Jesus Christ be with thy spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. You've heard the swan song of the Apostle Paul. Until next time, when we begin the book of Ezekiel, may the Lord bless you, my beloved.